Hi everybody and welcome back to In The Weeds podcast. So this week I am joined by Josh Capel all the way from LA. So he's originally from Baton Rouge but calls Los Angeles his home and he's an entrepreneur, award-winning Michelin-rated restaurateur and a viral advocate and in some southern hospitality all the way to California. You know what, I, w- I was really humbled that he reached out actually because uh, I received an email said that he was, a, he was a fan of In The Weeds podcast crazy that someone on the other side of the world is listening to that but it's really nice to hear and 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 you know connecting in that way because we can't currently connect in the podcast episode you realize how much you really do have in common and the same problems are happening all over the world although be slightly different but you know it's it's good to it makes you feel that there is hope out there josh has managed from the hottest place in hollywood nightclubs bars ultra lounges in 2010 he went independent opened his place on the walk of fame in the heart of hollywood and 10 years later he's created a you know a family of brands ranging from michelin rated dining to fast casual and like many you know his, his life and and well turned on its head a year ago when pandemic started and everything changed forever so you know josh has been creating content and reevaluating his life and also hosting the full comp podcast which has got some of the biggest names from us hospitality on there and he's been getting the world out so you know he wants to service the service industry which you know is great to hear and you know i think his story is really inspiring and i hope everyone enjoys this episode and thanks again for listening hope everyone's well safe please enjoy take care hey guys welcome back to in the weeds podcast i'm delighted this week to be joined from Someone across the pond, Mr. Josh Capel, Michelin rated restaurateur. It's about 9 p.m. here in the UK, 1, 1 p.m. For, for Josh. So based out of L.A., how, how are you today? I'm good, man. All things considered, no complaints, mm. I suppose. <laughs> so we were just talking briefly about your current, obviously we're looking at uh, the start of March 2021 here. We're obviously in a difficult situation globally. So how's L.A. right this second? It's like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It is crazy. The inmates have taken over the prison. But, you know, this is this is kind of the beginning of the end, right? Like we're rolling out vaccinations in a massive level. You know, the mayor has, has kind of hinted at he's going to allow restaurants to open at 25% capacity by the middle of the month. Okay. And it seems like, you know, life will slowly but surely over the course of the next six to 12 months return to some semblance of normalcy, which is the glass half full, I suppose. Yeah, I hope so. I think the way things have gone back and forth, though, you just kind of just, just got to hold on to the hope, man. About, like you say, the vaccinations are going rapidly. Let's hope it is. Uh, well, yeah. And I mean, largely this has been a real curse, but it, you know, I, I think there are a lot of good things for the industry that'll come out of the pandemic. There are a lot of part-timers that'll eliminate themselves from the industry. I think that, I think that there were probably too many restaurants globally. And so I, I think that less competition in this moment is probably better for the ones that survive. I also think that without the market saturation for customers, uh, better products will survive, which is great. And I also think, and, and I, I've said this a lot on my own show, that there just hasn't been a lot of innovation over the course of the last 2000 years in the industry. And over the course of the last 10 to 12 months, we've seen tons of innovation, which is inspiring because it's the massive failure rate that you saw within our industry highlights that there are foundational issues within hospitality that need to be handled before we all get back to work. And so 
I think a lot of really smart people have been diligently working on those. And that, that to me, inspires hope. Yeah. No, I think I, I 100% agree with you there. A lot of them, my listeners are UK-based. So first and foremost, just give them a little indication of kind of what you do so they can know who we're listening to. And then I'd be really interested to talk about how the UK paradoxes to, to America, what you've just spoken about. For sure. So I spent my life in the industry. I, uh, it, it, at my peak, I owned three concepts. I owned a bar in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard for over 10 years. I had a Michelin-rated fine dining restaurant for six years. I owned a fast casual concept in the fried chicken space called South City Fried Chicken. That was rated the best fried chicken in, in Los Angeles. Nice. Nice. And so, you know, a, a lot of success, but behind the scenes, things were never great and money was always tight. And I was always stressed with financial and operational concerns. And, you know, I, I think that for a lot of people in the industry, I, th- I think the bloodletting that we've seen is all part of this great realization that things are a lot more difficult than maybe we let on to the general public, to our customers and, and, and to each other. Yeah. You know, you know, one of the, you mentioned the issues there, like behind the scenes, like for, for us, for example, we own like quite a varied group. Now, what are probably a lot of people don't see, especially in the UK and, and it's just been addressed in the budget. So VAT here is a massive, massive issue. 20%, mm-hmm. 20% VAT usually crippling now sometimes for for a wet lead venue or a bar nightclub etc you know the, the you still get the vat on alcohol back so you know for example a vat bill in a restaurant can be double what it is in a bar and it's a tiny restaurant do you get what i mean it, it, do you still have do you have the same similar tax problems in in america like that operationally i don't think taxes or, or what's killing us. I mean, I think what's killing us is, is margin, margin in general. And sure, taxes are going to play a role in that. For us, they, they are two huge foundational issues, right? So the first one is going to be price. You know, a burger costs what people are willing to pay for it and not what it actually costs. And so when you look at a $10 burger that somebody bought in 1995 and they paid $10 for that same burger today and that same restaurant that exists, that negates the, the inflation and the increase in labor and the increase in rent and ancillary overhead that's occurred over that 25-year period. Mm-hmm. And so for us, prices haven't increased commensurately with overhead. So that's created a shrinking margin. And then I think the second part of that is labor, right? Like over here, we're dealing with a $15 an hour minimum wage is, is what we're moving towards. And you know, I would argue that one, that could result in severely hurting the industry, but two, that it's an absolutely necessary reality. You have to pay people a living wage. You just do. And the problem is restaurateurs are at a point now where we can no longer absorb any more costs that the customers don't want to pay and the customers don't want to pay it. So it's a really difficult position to be in because that $10 burger is probably an $18 burger. Right. When, when it's either served to you by a human being or prepared by human beings who then get into a car and drive that burger to your house. And so I, I think that there's a really big conversation to have around labor, which also kind of revolves around responsible management and ownership. And then, you know, how that's going to affect the price that the customer pays. In, in the U.S., you feel I mean, I, I was in New York not long ago. 
I couldn't believe the price. It's expensive now than, than it used to be maybe five, 10 years ago, from what I see. And I would argue that it's not expensive enough. I yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. That's really yeah. the problem. And it's the same thing there. Yeah. The food's not cheap, but how many people are getting subsidized healthcare? How many people are getting retirement plans? How is it possible that, you know, people talk all the time about like gig work and the gig economy and all of these things. But like, there are people that work in the hospitality industry in the United States for 50 years and walk away from it like it was a gig, right? With no money in savings, no retirement, no health care. And that's, that's a tragedy because this, is a, this, this industry is not a small industry in any country. It represents a huge employment force and it represents a huge number of constituents that political parties should recognize, respect and, and advocate for. Yeah, I mean, in, in I'd say like in Europe, you know, if you're if you're a waiter, let's say you take a waiter for example, right? You're in you're in Italy or Spain, you know, you get looked after, and it's a career, but it's also a career. You know, the consumer or the guest in the restaurant, you know, the respect is two ways. Whereas, you know, the US and UK, from what you're saying about the US, is it's 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 not seen as that, and there's too much kind of like it's a stepping stone career or. You know, like you said before, you know, there's a lot of part time using it and they don't respect the industry enough. And I think it's got to change and it and should change. Maybe sometimes something like this needs to, to happen, something really drastic to people to see and respect it. I mean, you talk there's a lot of talk now, especially and it's probably the same there about, oh, man, they're missing this and how, how the hospitality is so important. It's what happens after, you know, is everyone just it's all talk now. It's what, what actions come in place afterwards, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I see exactly what you mean. And I, and I think that, that there's you're already seeing it. I'm sure you're already getting flyers in the mail for restaurants that are offering two-for-one this and heavily discounted that and happy hour this. And it's a real issue. I, I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons that we had dwindling margins before was because we're all in a race to see who could sell the cheapest stuff yeah. for the longest period of time. Yeah. And we... We have destroyed our value proposition with the general public. And I am all about the magical experience that restaurants offer. That's why I got into it, because I love the mystery and the theatrical nature of it. Having said that, we've gone way too far as an industry. And no one on the other side truly understands the effort that goes into creating an effortless experience. You don't enjoy a restaurant that you go in and you see people grinding. Right. But at the same time, they need to know how hard it is. They need to know that if the restaurant opens at 5 p.m., they might have had people working in that kitchen at eight o'clock that morning. Mm -hmm. Because all of that needs to get baked into the cost. I think that by and large, we're people pleasers. Right. And and the, the, the issue with that is we haven't afforded the transparency, which is why I think it's so easy to get on a social platform and like bag a restaurant you had a bad meal at. Because what they do is easy and all restaurateurs are rich, right? And everybody's super successful. I mean, even, even in 2021, I, I, Eater came out with this article talking about you know the struggles of independent restaurateurs. And somebody in the comments even said, oh, I'm sure all you know things aren't that bad for these millionaire restaurateurs and blah, blah, blah. It just speaks to the fact that people still don't get it. And like the only way they're going to is if we have the conversation. The conversation we haven't wanted to have for 10 years, mm. which is it's hard. We're barely making it. We need to make more because our costs go up and we're going to pass that expense along to you. And either we stay in business or we fail. But 
In an effort to try and sustain a bad business model, we've made compromises as an industry, myself included, that that have prided survival over thriving. How many restaurateurs do you think are out there in the world that aren't paying themselves or are paying into the business, basically paying to work for free? Oh, many, many, many. Yeah. No, 100%. And you think, how do you, how do you feel? So one thing they're doing here in the UK, well, obviously you're kind of like more, probably works more of a state level, but the, you know, they're going to introduce a hospitality minister who deals directly with the government. For example, hey, you can't put VAT back up to 20% because you're going to have mass closures or how are you going to stimulate that, the industry? Because like you said, those problems you've had, are, you know, the, the global and, and people have this idea that it's all good. It, it's, it's not. I mean, the amount of, I think it's the biggest, the biggest closures in, in the first six months of business is restaurants. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it, you know, the industry here represents anywhere between 11 to 13 million people yeah, well. across the country. So it's a huge swath that ended up unemployed, working, you know, full-time to part-time, working for free just to keep the place open. And, and so, you know, the, the industry has been indelibly marred by this. On the other side, and I think it's worth mentioning, for all the restaurants that are closed, there are a bunch of restaurants out there that are making an absolute fortune. And I think that it's important to look at those models, see what they're doing right, and adopt those techniques and strategies as well. What do you think the future, or you know, what what do you think people should be embracing in the market, so to speak, coming coming in the future, immediate future? I think that right off the bat, I had the wrong business plan. I didn't really have a business plan. I had an idea. The idea was I was going to open a restaurant with this food that I wanted to serve in this building that I really liked. And people were going to show up, they were going to eat it, and they were going to leave. And that's not a business plan. That's not a strategy. And I, I know I'm not alone in walking into you know, what was a $2 million build out with that plan in mind. How was I going to make the money back? Well, I didn't even know what I was going to charge or what it was going to look like or what the hours of operation were going to be. I just kind of rolled into it. And not because I'm stupid, but because maybe a little, maybe, but more because I didn't really see a model out there. And as an industry, there wasn't a lot of group think, right? It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of education to be had. Mm -hmm. And the education that was there to be had was from companies that were trying to do it for you, right? They were trying to sell you on it instead of teaching you how to do it. So, you know, I believe that the future it is going to be more demand focused as opposed to supply focused. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what I've learned in my 20 years in this industry is that you can't create demand, right? You can only facilitate demand. So if you're doing something that someone doesn't want and you're not able to pay your bills, you shut it down, you figure out what they do want and you open as that. And if yeah. you're a great restaurateur and a great chef, then you don't, you don't, marketing isn't about convincing people to come to your restaurant. Marketing is about telling people what you do and knowing that, that that product market fit is there. And so they come, they just need to know that you're there. So I think that there's going to be a huge shift in uh, conceptually in the way that restaurants are created. If you're passionate about Italian food and you want to open an Italian restaurant, maybe you don't do it in your neighborhood. Maybe you don't do it in your city. Maybe you find a city that needs it and you put it there. Alternatively, if you're super passionate about supplying your neighborhood with something, Instead of having a preconceived notion of what that cuisine would be, I think that you poll 
the neighborhood. You look at data, analytics, walkthrough traffic, availability of parking, a delivery volume, hours of operation, and you create a concept that serves that neighborhood and what that neighborhood wants. So that's a big one. Yeah. Two, multiple revenue streams. I think that, that we've got to become more dynamic in the way we make money. So I think that it's as much about dine-in, takeout, and delivery as it is about virtual experiences, retail, whether we're talking about selling sauces and spices online, as it is selling like merch in store. I think that every restaurant needs to become a media company and every restaurant needs to become a lifestyle brand. And if, if going to your restaurant doesn't say something, doesn't tell your patrons something about themselves, then it's going to be really hard to survive. The people that go to Chipotle go there because it says something about them. And so we all have to adopt that brand focus and that brand strategy in the new world. How do you feel about, you know, the online presence? How, how, you know, I know a lot of purists, for example, you've been in the game a long time, so have I. You know, you've seen before social media and you've seen after it. You know, it used to start word of mouth. Hey, have you been this joint? And it started at the front door you experienced. Now it's starting a long, long, long time, like you just said, before they get anywhere near your establishment. If you're not, if your marketing isn't right or the Instagram feed is wrong, then it ain't going to happen. So how, how do you feel about that? And do you feel, you know, one, how do you embrace it? And one, what, how would you feel the problems are with it? So as a restaurateur, I didn't have much time for social media, which was a mistake, was a huge mistake. I think so many of us woke up March 15th, you know, in the US, woke up March 15th, 2020, to realize a couple of things. One, we had customers, but we didn't have an audience. And two, we didn't own the customers that we had. So if you got all of your customers through Open Table and Resi and third-party delivery platforms, you don't own those customers. You don't know their names. You don't have their contact info. You don't have a way to communicate with them directly. You haven't actually built that relationship. Uber Eats has, not you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, I think the, the other big thing that, that became as a, a real big realization is we're all in the business of building audience. And so for the people that didn't have time to build audience through social media, they no longer had a platform to directly communicate with their people. And so again, I think it's this broad shift. I, I think you came up in the same industry I did, which you know told us these, these lies. You know, the restaurant industry is different. It's not like any other industry. We don't play by the same rules. We can't run our businesses in the same ways. You know, we don't market in the same way that other businesses do. You know, uh, uh, email funnels and marketing strategies don't work for us but they do. And they work for all businesses. The problem is due to the lack of outside influence in our industry, we were all teaching each other without learning from other industries. So, you know, without that outside influence, there's really no innovation, which is why the greatest innovation that's happened to restaurants in the last 20, 30 years is going to be, you know, the digitizing of the point of sale system and open table an online reservation platform, which honestly isn't that mind-blowing to digitize a physical book? Mm-hmm. But now, over the last 12 months, my God, the whole world has changed for us. Yeah. I, I try and, like, maybe you can expand on a bit, but I think, expl- like, the data, gathering people's data and the data-driven sort of scenario is is absolutely huge. But again, these, these are all costs that people don't see. So if you're not, if you're not savvy with this, 
you're going to outsource it and you've already spent a fortune even before you've even looked at your menu or your suppliers. It's, it, and that, this, is a, this is another issue that the industry faces. That they, it's almost like that. I always call it like the merger with tech. You know, tech is just merging with everything. But this all costs money. And if you're not up to scratch or up to speed with it, especially imagine you're, you, you know, you're slightly more old school or whatever, you know, you can get left behind very quickly. You can, but here's the opportunity. You know, I was doing 3.4 million out of a 6,000 square foot, two-story restaurant. I bet you money. I could do 3.4 million out of a 1,500 to 2,000 square foot restaurant leveraging tech. I could make the same money with less overhead. So it's it's all in how you choose to see it. And it's all in how you choose to spend that money. Um, When you look at multiple revenue streams, people being able to buy your stuff online, uh, the emergence of delivery and takeout. I re-envision a whole new world for catering, right? Where catering is less about a 200-person event and more about large format, where you say that three days a week, a family of four can pick up a par-cooked meal at your restaurant for $49, drop it in the oven when they get home, and 20 minutes later, they have a meal that's just like a restaurant experience, right? That's the future. And in being able to think outside the box, you're able to monetize with... 25, 30, 40% of the square footage that you had before. Mm-hmm. And is if people that, want that experience in the restaurant, they should pay a premium for it. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, what? that's really where we absorb the labor. Yeah, exactly. And should you think, like, because we t- I was talking about this before, so actually, if, you know, the at home experiences in the UK have like blown up. But I know, like, for example, you know, I speak to a few people and some people are like, oh, no, man, I want to go to the restaurant. I want to experience inside the restaurant. Okay, well, yeah, you're going to pay for that. But do you think it's got a longevity in it or do you not think it's going to drop off when this comes full circle? You really think there's a long term? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Here's what I think. I think people have gotten very used to the convenience of delivery and takeout offers. Mm. And so instead of like, just as an example. Let's say you're going to throw a birthday party, right? You can go to a restaurant, throw a big party, have everything handled for you. Or you could have all of those friends come over to your house. You could buy a big kit at the restaurant and you guys could all cook the food together in this beautiful virtual event with a Michelin rated chef who had, you know, you have their undivided attention and they're able to put this whole thing together. I, I think that, that, it's going to stay. It won't be 80 to 90% of top line sales no. like we're seeing today, but it used to be five to 10%. So I think it's going to land probably somewhere between 30, 35%. I also think it's choose your own adventure, bro. And I think that you can define what you want your product mix to be. Yeah. I think that, that if you, you know, if you have a, a specialized takeout and delivery menu that really speaks to your audience and is it, you know, a competitive price point that, that, maintains profitability why wouldn't you want to push that forward and use that yeah i absolutely you know what it might change as well i've seen you know let's say here you have a site in one city you know and and people know your brand but they they're going to use this at home service from another you know it's going to change how people maybe roll out the business you know okay well if people want to come to the restaurant they got to travel they got to pay the premium however if you don't you can get uk wide shipping next day and you can do your virtual thing at home. I do think it's definitely going to stay. Like you say, obviously 80, 90%, that's not, not going to carry on. But, you know, it could be 10, 20% of your sales for all you know. You know, I, I've interviewed, geez, like 80 people now. And, and, and the one thing that I've seen consistently from like the most successful restaurateurs is intention. 
And so I, I think it has less to do with the market and the market trends and all of that, and more to do with the individual restaurateur and them actually taking the time to sit back and say, this is what I want my business to look like. This is what I want my, my product mix to look like. This is where I want to make my money. This is how I want to promote my brand. This is how I want people to perceive me. This is what it says about the people that come to the restaurant. I, I think that we got ourselves into this. I think we should take a lot of responsibility for the state of the industry before, during, and after the pandemic. But I also think that that shows that there's a huge opportunity for us to make better decisions moving forward, mm-hmm. regardless of what your neighbor does. So if your neighbor wants to keep selling food at a discounted rate from open to close every day, let him do it. But like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to run my business that way. I think, you know, what? it's it 100% the same thing happened here where there's that much saturation that people were, you know, the discount thing became a thing. And we, you know, we've done it ourselves. I know, I know most people do it and it's the last thing you want to do. However, like you say, it's not something to continue. And I, I, I don't foresee that being the way forward either at all. And I think you just, it, it completely messes around with your model and your brand and, and what you're about. And I think if anything, that could change. But like you say, if you want to, you shouldn't really, the industry shouldn't be, or the, or the, the venue shouldn't be selling themselves short because if you want to pay for it, that's how much it costs and that's how it should be. But then hopefully maybe people, the actual guests and consumer might be reminded how actually important it is to go out and socialize and you are paying for an experience rather than, oh man, yeah, let's go out and get with the cheapest thing we can find through X, Y, Z. Right. Or not. And, and that's, that's kind of my point in all of this. And, and I can only speak for myself and my own values, mm-hmm. but you know, when, when, when we open the next restaurant, what we're going to do is we're going to, again, work towards that product market fit. Once we have it, we're going to reverse engineer the pricing with livable wages for everyone, you know, subsidized healthcare, retirement plans. And I'm going to set it up so that I can put a little money in my own pocket, right? And that it's an actual profitable venture for me. And we're going to open. And if people don't want the price points, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to close my doors <laughs> because what's seriously, what's the point of doing this for free or paying to work for free? It's how many costs do, do we have to eat? And that's not to say that those prices won't change because when you go to a petrol station, the price changes every day, multiple times a day based on what the associated overhead is. And I don't understand why our pricing wouldn't change when the cost of fruits and vegetables and protein varies day-to-day, week-to-week. When it's cheap, we make more money. When it's expensive, we don't make any. And we don't say anything. And we don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'm not all about saying in business. I'm all about making money. Yeah. You know? Let's talk a little bit about the people in hospitality. You know, we've mentioned staff there. You mentioned healthcare. You know, how, you know, one of the biggest things that we spoke about uh, quite a bit um, especially in the UK is obviously this badge of honor of working like 80, 90 hours a week for X, Y, and Z, where, you know, your minimum wage ends up like four pound an hour, which is like $6 or whatever. How do you feel that's got to change? For me, that has to change in, in like we're talking about and the shift in people's thinking, because if you want it to be an industry where people use this career and really, you know, a thought provoking in that way, that has to change. How's that, how is that in, in, in LA and in, in the US? I mean, in the U.S., it's the same, right? Like everybody, 
you know, I, I so vividly remember this moment that I used to think was funny. And now I just think it's both funny and sad, which is I had this uh, GM that I hired in. He was talking to me about how exhausted he was. He had just finished a 60 hour work week the week before. And as he's telling me the story, the executive chef is walking around the corner and he goes, I remember my first part-time job, right? Because 60 is nothing in the industry. 60 yeah. is like a bare minimum. And like, why, why is that a point of pride? Like, like wouldn't it make more sense to, to work less and earn more? Especially when, when you look at the industry, one of the reasons I think that it is such a transitional uh, industry for people is because it is so much easier to, to work less and make more. Mm-hmm. That, that general manager quit and he quit he, a smart guy and he quit because he said, I can literally work 20 to 30 hours less every week and make more money doing anything else in the world other than this. So why would I do this? And so, you know, you're, you're an old hat at this and I am too. How are we going to get new people into this and convince them to stay when you look at the millennial generation and like, they're not about the grind. Like they're not holding their hands up and going, look at all these scars. And, you know, I I worked 10 hours today without a bathroom break and I haven't eaten in 18 hours and nobody's interested in that anymore. The, The world is changing and we have to change with it. And that, you know, the bubble that existed prior to COVID where we all talked to each other and we all thought the same way that that bubble popped. And if we're going to get more people back into the industry, People aren't looking to work for people that can't afford to pay them. People aren't looking to work for people that are going to require them to work insane amount of hours, destroying work-life balance. And without a sustainable business model, you know, I, I just, I don't know how we survive generally because I want, I want to have great people work in this industry, but in order for that to happen, I think it needs to be a great industry and we need to redefine what great means. Yeah, I agree. I think like, you know, I had Tom Kitchen who's a big chef in, in Scotland here. I, you know, he's often experienced, you know, he's having someone come in, you come and work here, he's going to offer you a career. That's it. That's different. Do you know what I mean? It, I think when like that's offering something longevity, a career, you know, you're going to put the hours in, but you're going to get the reward where, you know, it's like you say, it's like, how'd you get you know, if you want to work, I don't know, just, just your normal restaurant, high street neighborhood restaurant, you know, you can't, you can't expect people to do that. And I think, like you say now, the millennial attitude for anyone, maybe, I don't know, pre 25, say they don't care, man. They, like you say, they don't care. It's about the personal journey. So, you know, I don't, they don't want to work 60 hours. What are you talking about? I'm not doing that. It's, it's, that's probably smarter, man. Like I yeah, used to, yeah, like, yeah. you know, I used to talk a lot of smack about it, but like, yeah. gotta tell you, I haven't worked 60 hours in a week and I used to work 80 to a hundred and it's been almost a year. And in that time, I've gotten to know my daughter. I've gotten to reconnect with my wife. I got in shape. I, uh, I'm eating right. And, you know, I used to eat most of my meals, you know, standing up in a suit, you know, in, in a scullery, watching some guy wash dishes. And, and now, you know, I sit at a table, I eat like a human being and I, I just, I would never go back to it. You know, the, the reason that I started my show was because I wanted to know if there was a better path forward. And I knew that I didn't have the answer, but like what I did know for certain, and I'm sure you, this will resonate with you as well. The day everything shut down, you didn't hear anyone saying, man, I can't wait for things to go back to the way they were before because it was barely livable. 
And so, you know, now we're getting close to the world reopening, you know, to bring the conversation full circle. And what lessons did we learn? And what are we going to do differently? And how are we going to inspire people to join our cause? And do you have any answers to that? (laughs) (laughs) I can only talk about what I'm going to do differently and and how I'm going to inspire people. And I think, I think it starts for me personally, one, starting with a better plan, having the details worked out, really understanding how to service a community in a way that is meaningful to them. That way I don't have to spend a fortune discounting my food and on marketing and begging people to come to the restaurant. They'll want to come because it was something that they wanted to start with way more money in the bank or I'm not going to do it at all. Period. Like, you know, I don't know about you. I've never opened a concept with a dollar in the bank. Mm. I am always over time and over budget, you know? Mm-hmm. I think what you've so, you seen it here as well, that, you know, like a, a lot of these corporate companies are built on massive amounts of debt or, you know, private investment. And you've seen that come like, whoa, hang on. That fucking, that's a, that's a massive problem when you get in a problem like this. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this is where, you know, you probably can hope, well, I hope anyway, there's a, there's a big independent surge from this. And, you know, like you say, you're cutting out a lot of substandard operations. Well, I think it's also important to understand that by and large, people like mediocre and people like trash. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, and that, that's just the thing. And, and they like it because it's cheap and it's easy. And they don't have to understand the nuance. And I think that that goes back to a bigger point, which is we need to dig into the nuance. We need to double down on storytelling and we need to do it through social media. You need to tell people who you are, why you open the restaurant and why they should care. And I think that that if you tackle those three things every single day on the social media platforms that your audience is on, there, there will be resonance. You know, people... By and large, it, I mean, I can tell you this for, for major cities in the U.S., like they're rooting for independent restaurants mm-hmm. and they want to see it work, but they have to understand the correlation between where they choose to spend their money and what will exist within their neighborhood. Because a McDonald's never makes anyone's neighborhood better. It, it doesn't. And that's not its design. McDonald's is utilitarian. I need a burger. I need it in 30 seconds or less. Boom, there it is. It always tastes the same. It always looks the same. It always comes out in the same amount of time. But that is that is not a community table. That is not a place where people are building relationships with family and friends and neighbors. After you turn six years old, you no longer want to celebrate your birthday at McDonald's, right? And so if you want those independent restaurants to exist after the pandemic, you've got to spend your money there. And you're going to have to spend more than you're comfortable with. You might have to go to the restaurant to pick it up. Or you might have to pay a premium for delivery. And you might have to forgive a couple of snafus in, in service uh, you know, as, as we reopen and get back to work because it's going to be difficult to start. Also, I think that there's a gold rush coming and there's going to be huge restaurant volume for the restaurants that survive. And I think it's going to take us a while to get back into the swing of things. So people are going to need to be patient with us. Yeah. Also, like here, uh, there's a big rise and, and rightly so, I think, in, in you know, sourceability and where where things are coming from so getting educated the youth early and and where these things come from and with all due respect america's probably not had the uh the best you know the best history with that how is like the thinking and ethos and obviously it's there and you know what i mean but uh how is how is the ethos with there because there's a big big rise in this from like you know like michelin starred restaurants here in the uk you've also got the green star now 
you know, it's a big thing about people are looking, especially younger people where, you know, it used to be Michelin star used to be for a certain amount of people. It's not now. And people, I would say people look maybe for a green star where they do for a one and two star Michelin first, you know what I mean? So how is that translated across over there? Is it, it must be a big part of the future, surely. Oh, certainly. And I mean, you look at cities like Los Angeles, we actually got a green star as well from the city of Los Angeles because um, we, 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 when they initiated what was called the Recycla program in LA, okay. uh, we were the first ones to jump on board with, you know, recycling, composting, the whole nine yards. Uh, what the city of Los Angeles has done, and I think, you know, usually what starts in LA drifts to the rest of the country is they incentivized it. They said, here's a trash can, here's a recycling bin, and here's a compost bin. And anything recycle or compost, you don't have to pay for it. It's free. And we're going to charge you double for all of the trash that you produce. Yeah. So it inspires you to more, more responsibly work or you pay a premium for the service. So uh, politically, I, I think it's moving in the right direction, nudging people with, with financial incentives to do the right thing. I've also been shocked. You know, when you look at like the Seafood Watch has a uh, app that lists all of the restaurants that are in compliance with their initiatives. And I was amazed over the course of the six years that Prune Proper was there how many people found us through this app because they care where their seafood comes from. What I have seen is, you know, when we started it, you know, a real personal story is when the executive chef and I got together, you know, he said, you know, I want to do these, these sustainable initiatives. And I said, well, is it going to be expensive? Right. Cause I'm a restaurateur. That's the first question we ask. <laughs> yeah. And he said, yeah, it is. And I said, well, do you think people will care? And he said, eventually. Mm. And, and, you know, we started early. We started aggressively. He took the time to figure out where to source from, how to source. You know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Good Food 100 initiative, uh, but we've been included every year that, that we submitted. And, and I think that when we look at sustainability, I, I think you can look at it from a variety of standards. And I think it all speaks to your ethics. And I think that especially the millennial generation is really looking to work with ethical businesses and, and support financially businesses that they think are ethical. One thing that I found amazing about my experience with the millennial generation is that they are not motivated by money. They don't care how much they make and they don't care how much they spend. All they care about is that they feel like they're getting value from both of those transactions. Most definitely. But I think, I think as well is, you know, let's take coffee, for example. I mean, we, we, you know, we know being in speciality coffee game, you know, people now 10 years ago, let's say you're young and, and they, they wouldn't dream of spending 350 on a coffee a lot, you know, a lot of them. Where now they want to know where it's from, who the farmer is, was it ethically sourced, what cup is it, what it's, what's it coming in. These are all things that, again, the thought processes before, they, before anything's poured into the cup is, is huge. It is. And, and because your customer cares, you're obligated to care as well, or you have to find a new customer. Yeah, but you, I think, you, sh I think it, you should care, you know what I mean? If oh, I agree. And I think though, then it's like, like you say, it's a case of then this will shine through where, you know, you're seeing the thought process goes full circle, doesn't it? I, I think. There's a big conversation to have around waste, mm. waste in our industry, whether we're talking about insane working hours, which is a waste of our time, mm -hmm. uh, the, the anxiety ridden nature of the industry, which is a waste of our emotional capacity you know, a, the, the, the wage imbalance that you see between front of house and back of house and 
generally how nobody's really making enough money to thrive and, and how that's a waste of human capital. And then you can get into, you know, the wasteful nature of food and food handling and food service and all of that as well. I, I hope, and I, 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 you know, I can only speak for myself, but I've done a lot of soul searching to figure out how I could be a better member of my community, how I could be a better member of my industry and, and how I'll serve my community and my industry moving forward in a more ethical way. Do you feel um, that the past year you've been able to really have a lot of self self-development? Yeah, for sure. And I think that you get so wrapped up in trying to survive that you forget about your own quality of life and the quality of life for your team. And that, that was truly my experience is that, you know, when, it, when I stopped and I spent like even the first week, like, I mean, I was destroyed emotionally, obviously. I just closed this restaurant that I dedicated more than half a decade of my life to had achieved all of these things. And 2019 and then in 2020 were shut down and broke. I've got a wife, a two and a half year old child, and I filed for unemployment for the first time in my life. And a week into it, I felt better. And I felt better because I'd spent so much time with my wife and my child. And it, it, there was this great realignment in my life of, of where my values are, what I value, what I think is important moving forward. And it's really impacted the way I see myself functioning within the hospitality industry. Because there are a lot of things that I would say no to now. Great example. You know, I spent years trying to figure out how to get busy on a Monday. Now I'd ask, do I need to be open on a Monday? Do I want to be open on a Monday? You know, if you run a restaurant five days a week and you have the right product market fit and you're making a ton of money, you're guaranteed to get two days off in a row with nobody calling you on the phone. That seems like a better deal to me. And, and that has more to do with planning than it does execution. Because by the time you're executing, it's all too late, right? There's no product market fit. The team isn't trained well. You were undercapitalized to begin with. I just, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have spent a lot more time thinking and a lot less time doing. That's high insight for you though, isn't it? Oh yeah. But you know, but like you say there, you know, you put things in perspective, you know, you, that time that you've had with, you know, you, like we're talking about similar aged children, you, you would never have had that. And that, that, that for me as well has been absolutely priceless that you feel like you'd know them more than you would have ever known them. Absolutely. And to think that I almost made that, that trade-off, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. And what, how do you feel LA, like you say, obviously LA, at the, you know, it's always had a great food scene. <laughs> like you say now, it's like what man, bit, bit like the Wild West out there, I suppose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How do you feel that can bounce back? Is there a strong, just to, to educate who's listening, do you feel, how is the scene independently in LA? You think it's going to push through? I think that the people that have survived are going to make a shit ton of money. <laughs> I, think there, I think there's a gold rush coming. I, I think that there's so much pent up demand for experience. That, that as soon as restaurants are able to open at 25% capacity, it's like the floodgates are going to open. And then the question is, are we ready, right? Like, like, do we have our infrastructure in place, our safety protocols in place? Are we really leveraging data to make sure that, you know, we're only doing what we need to do and outsourcing or delegating what is no longer necessary? Are we making sure that we own every part of the customer transaction? But I, I think that there is, there's so much pent up demand out there. And I mean, even if you just do the math, right? Look at it. US, we're looking at probably close to a 60% permanent closure rate. So even if demand just went back up to 100%, which I think it's going to be way more than that, 
But even if it just went up to 100%, you've got, you know, 40% of the supply to 100% of the demand. So I, I think people are going to have more business than they know what to do with. Now, are they charging enough to actually make money off that demand? It's a very different story. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So what about, let's talk about you a little bit. Get you, when you go out, where do you like to go in LA? Oh, my goodness. There's so many great restaurants. I mean, through the pandemic, we've been doing a ton of takeout and delivery like everyone else. And so it's been really interesting to see a bunch of the independent restaurateurs lean into, you know, this this amazing takeout and delivery experience with the branding. There's a company called Sugarfish that like when you open the box, it's like a gift and everything's like clearly labeled with photos in this beautiful way. And like everything has a little space for it. And there's many experiences. The virtual events that I've seen in Los Angeles have been incredible. I, I think that, you know, they always say, you know, the, the real innovation happens in the big cities and then filters out. And I think in so many ways that's true. But I've also seen LA restaurateurs learning from people in Boston and Austin, Texas and Houston, because at this point on a di- in a digital landscape, innovation is everywhere. And so, you know, we've been taking it all in, finding new places. And also, you know, one of the one of the best barbecue restaurants in LA is being done out of somebody's garage in Long Beach. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the great leveling of this playing field, it's not just about, you know, who who has pivoted and survived, but it's also who are these new entrants into the market and what are they bringing to the table? Yeah, absolutely. Who's the... Um... When we go back, it's talking a bit about like sustainability and gardening. Is it the guy called Ron Finley is from LA, right? Yeah, he is. <laughs> I was looking at his stuff. The gangster gardener, for those of you who don't know, he's he is from South LA, right? South South Central. Yep. Yeah. South Central LA. Yeah. So he is he well known in the US? Very. So very well known in the food scene. Really? Yeah. Interesting stuff what he's uh what he's done. I believe like most of the land is council owned that he used in the first place. It is. And, and you know, it's when, when you think of, you know, the inner cities in America, many of them are food deserts. And so the, the fact that he's bringing, you know, these, these micro farms and, and fresh food into these communities is huge. It's the democratization of healthy food. Yeah. Uh, that, and, like we said, so it should be accessibility to all walks of life as I think is, that's been a problem. It's that problem in the UK for sure. It's about, it becomes an economical and political issue that though, I think. It does. Mm. We've seen it here too. So obviously you think, uh, you know, one of the biggest trends from LA that has definitely marked in the UK is the street food truck element so in the uk at the minute it's like you know i think that came a lot from LA. the sort of outside market vibe that you got in london i don't know if you've seen them that's probably the biggest thing that i think is that still transcending as part of the culture in la and small i'd say to a smaller degree Mm. um i i think you've seen a lot of a lot of food trucks i've also seen alcohol trucks right Where, where people are delivering alcohol to go which is a relatively new thing here in the u.s outside of Southern Louisiana. And so the accessibility the food trucks offer to get great food, you know, chef level food to people has been really exciting. And there, there is this movement of, you know, we'll bring it to you and we'll bring it to you in, in, in many different ways. 
So there's been a lot of that. The outdoor markets prevailed. They're open air and, and they're obviously socially distanced and capacity restricted. Uh, but it's been a real lifeline. And I'm sure over there too, for like local farmers, local producers, you've all seen a lot of restaurant tours, packaging sauces, spices, things like that. And then taking them to farmer's markets to retail them. Yeah. I mean, so are they, have, have you, food trucks and that been allowed to open? Have you been allowed to walk into or walk past because it's open air or not? That really depends on. based on what city you're in and where you are. In some areas, food trucks are allowed and in some less so. So also, you know, uh, you were talking before just a little bit about your background now and how much content you're doing online. So you, I believe you're, so you host two podcasts. Yes. But you're doing on a whole lot more, I believe. Yeah. So I, I, I created a strategic partnership with Yelp. And so they're helping to push a bunch of this media out. We have full comp, which is unstructured interviews with people, thought leaders inside and outside of the industry that are offering a new perspective so that we can find a better way forward. A lot of the stuff that we talked about here is the stuff that I talk about on the show with, you know, guys like Seth Godin and John Taffer and Grant Cardone and Sam Nazarian, people from inside and outside the industry. Um, and then I do restaurant marketing school, which is a, uh, it's a daily show releases every day. Every episode's five minutes. And we talk about uh, innovations in marketing that you can implement in your restaurant every day. I host the show with uh, Eric Sue, who's the uh, $25 million man. He uh, he's like a famed digital marketer in the U S so he offers insights that we wouldn't have access to otherwise in the industry. And then uh, I, I produce a morning show with a restaurateur and a celebrity chef called Happy Mouth, the playbook, which is a written, it's, a, it's daily release, these articles from restaurateurs around the world. And uh, we do 10 halls every month with past guests to full comp so that the audience themselves get to ask uh, these thought leaders different questions. So a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, anyone that's interested in learning about it can go to joshcopel.com or restaurants.yelp.com. Yeah, man, that, that, well, that's keeping you busy, at least. That's going to be... It is. Yeah, man, that's the future. And like you, I'm trying to to move the conversation forward, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want things to be different, and I want them to be better for me and for everyone else. Yeah, man, absolutely. So I ask most of my, um, most of my guests this. So do you have a Pacific in the weeds moment in, in life that is kind of maybe you've thought this shit was... Couldn't get any worse, but it's kind of pushed you through trying through adversity. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was March 15, <laughs> 2020. I mean, I, you know, I was on unemployment for the first time in my life. I had a wife and a child to take care of. And, you know, it's one thing when you lose your job, that's sad. When you lose your business, it can be devastating. But when, when you witness the obliteration of your entire industry, where do you go from there? And, and so, you know, for me personally, I had to dig deep and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. What could I spend the next six weeks, six months, six years doing and not regret? And for me, I figured out that above all other things, I'm a servant. That's what I enjoy doing. I don't cook. I'm a restaurateur. I love the front of house. I love taking care of people. And so I had to ask myself in light of a global pandemic, who can I serve? And I decided it was going to be my industry. And so I started having conversations with the people that I had admired my entire career. And I asked the questions that I wanted to know the answers to. 
And I put that out in a public forum and it just so happens what I was curious about other people were curious about too. And, uh, and what it's led to has been the, the most satisfying experience of my entire life, getting to talk to everyone that I idolize and, you know, people in the trenches. It's just been, it's just been super inspiring. I'm very proud to be in the industry. I always was, but more so now than ever before. Yeah. I think uh, I, I know from just doing, I mean, I just did this on a whim myself, my own podcast, but I think my, my partner always says, you do the podcast and you're always buzzing after it. You feel, and I just enjoy it. And I think it's the connection as well with people that you get. Yeah. And it's just the, the you're obviously lacking right now as well, you know? And I think it, it kind of thing, you know what? And it, it's kind of a, a form of therapy, is it? Because everyone's going through the same thing, like you say there. You know, you people are and, and people are seeing that. Okay, look, you can't you can't replace loved ones dying, and that, that, that you know that that can't be replaced. But you know, people's mental health here with it's not just like busy. People have spent the whole lives doing something or building something up that's just been taken away from them. It, it's, oh yeah, everyone's got their own story, and and you know that's why everyone should always relate and be kind to people because you don't know what people are suffering through, and I think more than ever that's been seen now. And you know what else more than ever, I feel that, for example, I don't know how it's like in the US, but you know, like through the middle of it, they tried to reopen the restaurants and then you reopen in an empty city center, right? Or, or a deserted thing without theaters open, without, you know, sports events on, without thing. And everything's linked, the taxi drivers, the buses, the ecosystem of everything. And that's why really everyone should, you know, it shouldn't be them and us. It's about, a collective one and that comes from the guests to going right down to people coming to your restaurant i couldn't agree with you more but i you know is there anything else you you want a final word from josh capel <laughs> yeah i mean all again i would just repeat I, there's a gold rush coming and so we all need to be ready i i, I think so that's a good way to end it i think a big positive positive sentence mate thank you uh for reaching out and thanks for coming on I'm a huge, again, I'm a huge fan of the show, man. And so I appreciate what you do, which is why I reached out. Yeah, well, the same likewise to you. Uh, I'll send it right back over to you. Thanks, man. Well, that's it for this week, guys. And like I said at the start, I'm, you know, really happy to have Josh on. The fact that he reached out from the other side of the world. And, you know, we can stay connected and create friends in, in these difficult times. So hopefully one day we can meet in person soon. Please check out his podcast, the Fullcom podcast, with some of the biggest names in US hospitality. And also the Restaurant Marketing School, which is like a five-minute workshop on different things. It's really interesting, both in partnership with Yelp for Restaurants. So thanks again for listening, guys. Hopefully a lot of people can relate to what we've been talking about and there's a bit of positivity there and light at the end of the tunnel for some people. So see you next week, guys, and thanks for listening. As always, take care.